Uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Would you join me to just give God thanks by saying thanks be to God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was a hot summer's day when I made my way south on I-71 toward Medina, and I took the exit for Route 3 toward the picturesque Hallmark-style Medina Town Square. If you haven't been there, it's a great place. And I paralleled park out, parked outside of La Placa Droolers, where a guy named Justin was waiting for me, and people call him Jay. Now, I was there to see Jay in order to pick out an engagement ring for my then-girlfriend, Kate. And Jay knows the most effective way to display his valuable merchandise. Inside of a glass case lit up by bright white light lie silver and gold rings that are set against black velvet. You see, Jay knows what any good jeweler knows, that contrast creates clarity. It's not original to me, but I think it sounds really good, and it's true. (laughs) Contrast creates clarity. Precious metals and diamonds gleam clearer and brighter against a dark backdrop. That same dynamic takes place in our passage this morning. Contrast creates clarity. Now, just to keep our eye on the big picture, in the Gospel of John, this passage in front of us contributes toward rising action. Maybe you remember that from the plot structure of English class in eighth grade. Here, the heat on Jesus gets dialed up a few notches. We're approaching the last week of his earthly life. He has a mark on his head. He even mentions in this very passage that he will soon be buried. But this passage does more than contribute to the rising action of the overall story. It also paints for us a portrait of two contrasts. Contrasts of those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And these contrasts create clarity for what it looks like when Jesus really does redeem someone from the inside out. What does that look like? Well, what these contrasts make clear is that it looks like when Jesus redeems someone, he becomes their greatest treasure. When Jesus redeems someone, he becomes their greatest treasure, even more valuable than riches, even more valuable than power. This will become clear as we examine these two contrasts in this section of John. The contrasts are Mary and Judas, 
as well as Lazarus and the chief priests. Now, how this will work is that we'll more or less narrate the action as it unfolds. We'll make some application along the way, and we'll close each contrast with maybe a couple of takeaways. All right, That's our strategy moving forward. So contrast number one, Mary and Judas. And full disclosure, this is the longer point of the two. So if you're wondering, Steve, are we still in point one? It's likely that we are still in point one. I'll let you know. Now, John, as he often does, gives a timestamp for us as we begin chapter 12. He, sa- he says this is six days before the Passover feast. Now, if Passover was on a Friday, that means six, day b- six days before it would have been a Saturday. That is the Sabbath day. And for the Jewish people, Saturday night wasn't all right for fighting. Saturday night was all right for feasting. John tells us that Jesus also, more than just the timestamp of it, he tells us the location. He goes back to the village called Bethany. Now, just a few verses earlier, back in chapter 11, verse 54, we're told that Jesus has come from a wilderness town called Ephraim. Now, if you compare John's account with Matthew and Mark's account of this very same scene, you'll find that Matthew and Mark recount this scene from a couple of different angles and include a couple of other details that John doesn't include. Matthew and Mark will say that Jesus went to dinner in the village of Bethany, but Jesus went to the house of Simon the leper. And yet at Simon's house, the whole gang is there. We see Martha doing her servant thing, as we've been told she enjoys doing. We see Lazarus, the guy who was dead for four days, now physically eating with Jesus. And we see Mary, and while Mary will get to her in a minute... But right here, this family is almost like a little church. Each person has a different part to play, no part more important than another, but still acting together for their love for Jesus and their service to Jesus. So here we are in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus help put on what seems to be a village feast, a village feast that likely would have been hosted by several different families. And you might imagine what could have been posted on Bethany in the Village of Bethany's group Facebook page. Party at Simon's house, bring whoever you want because Jesus is going to be there. Or they would have gathered on this Sabbath night anyway, but they had even more reason to gather now that they had a guest of honor. That's how John presents it for us. Jesus shows up at Bethany. And so, verse 2, they give a feast. Now, in all of John's table setting for this scene, the word that stands out to me the most is therefore in verse 1. Now, bear with me because I know that preachers like me are infamous for explaining every single therefore in the Bible. But I really do think this one is important and significant. Because just remember what we've learned already with what's going on with Jesus. We've already learned that the bigwigs in Israel have conspired together to kill Jesus. We've already heard Jesus back in chapter 10 tell us about the culmination of his earthly life, that he will lay down his life for his sheep and then take it up again. So with the authorities on his tail and with the hour of his death looming, when Jesus will bear the full wrath of God's judgment for our sin as the final Passover lamb, with all of that going on, therefore, Jesus goes to Bethany. He heads in the direction of Jerusalem, but stops at Bethany first. 
Now, I know to some degree that this is speculation, but I can't help but wonder that if Jesus decides to stop at Bethany, because with all of this weighing on him, he knows that Bethany would be a place of rest and refuge. He knows that Bethany, he'll find people who welcome him with joy and welcome him as a friend. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that the church at West Creek would be like the village of Bethany. My friend, during the time in your life when you feel like you're under the most weight of stress and anxiety, it's our prayer that you would run to this group of people, not run away from us. May we have the reputation of being a place of rest and refuge and welcome. My prayer for you as an individual and for your home is that you would have that reputation as well. That you would be the person in your friend group, in your family, you would be the person that people call when they're in trouble. You would be the person that people call when they're discouraged, when they're stressed out. I pray that you would have, you would display a a sincere love and thoughtful care that gains you that reputation by God's grace. And I pray that that's your home's reputation as well. I pray that yours would be the home where people love to be in, where people feel welcomed and joyful because just the aroma of Christ is present. May we be like the village of Bethany. Well, at Simon's house in Bethany, there is a radically generous act that takes place. Verse three says that Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anoints the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Now, this ointment would have been expensive because there was a lot of it. A pound, or if you're using the ESV, you'll see a footnote that says it would have been roughly equivalent to 11 ounces. Now, 11 ounces of something like Chanel number no. five would be even a lot in our standards. But it would be expensive still because this ointment wasn't diluted. It was pure, John says. And this ointment would be expensive because it was what it was made from. Nard or spike nard, this likely would have had to have been imported because this plant came from India. So Mary gives an expensive Gift. And Matthew and Mark write that the ointment was in this alabaster flask that Mary broke before she poured it. And Bible historians comment on this saying that if you broke this type of flask, you would have to use the whole thing. So Mary gives an expensive gift and she gives all of it. Now, taken together, I think that Mary reflects the heart you and I should have when we give. Mary gives her best. She doesn't give her leftovers. And while we don't have to give all we have, we should be generous and understand, like Mary, that all we have is from the Lord and all we have we should spend for the Lord in honor to him. Again, Matthew and Mark writes that Mary anoints Jesus' head, whereas John here says that Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Now, I bring up that difference because this is one place where you might get tripped up. This is even potentially a place where a critic might claim, hey, here's here's a contradiction in the Bible. How can you trust it? Who's right? Are Matthew and Mark right that that Mary anointed Jesus' head? Or is John right that that Mary anointed Jesus' feet? Yes. I think there's space for them both being right. 
Just consider how much that Mary used to anoint Jesus. There would have been too much for just his head, so Mary probably also anoints his feet. Right? It says that Jesus was reclining at table, so if that was the case, then he would have had one arm leaning on a cushion and his feet resting outward. So Mary would have access to his feet and to his head and to his body. In fact, in Matthew and Mark's accounts, at the very end of it, when Jesus speaks, Jesus says how Mary anoints, not his head, not his feet, but how she anointed his body, more than just one part of him. Well, what's most important isn't just where Mary poured this ointment, but that she did. Just a chapter earlier, here was someone who fell at Jesus' feet in grief. And now she anoints Jesus' feet in gratitude. This was an act of the lowest servant or even a slave. But not only that, John tells us that Mary used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Now, the etiquette of that time and place said that women should have let down their hair in public. And it gets me thinking, and we would all do well to remember this. Mary remembered it. That fear of man will stifle your worship of God. Fear of man will stifle your worship of God. Let me explain how this could have worked for Mary. You see, if Mary was controlled about what, if Mary was controlled by what other people thought about her, then she would have never done what she did. She could have just thought, well, people, people will think that what I'm doing is weird. People will think what I'm doing is wasteful. I, I better hold off. Maybe I shouldn't do so much. If Mary was controlled by what people thought of her, she would have never worshipped the way that she did. So my friend, for you, for me, if you are controlled by what other people think about you, you will worship timidly and you will love timidly. Let me just get concrete, cards on the table. There is some church etiquette that's helpful, but there is other church etiquette that it makes us stuffy and it makes us timid. So if you hear this, this just think about this time. If you hear something you believe and it moves you and you want others to listen to it, you know you are allowed to cry out, amen. And you're allowed to say it with your chest. It might be an encouragement to someone else. When we sing together, oh friend, you are allowed to do this without timidity. To sing like you believe it and savor what you're singing, this will be very controversial and maybe it's worth a longer conversation. When we sing You are allowed to raise your hands. (laughs) You really are. It's okay. It's okay. Maybe just consider it from this angle. Friend, what commends the beauty of the gospel and our Savior more? Folded arms and a downcast face. Praise God from whom all. Or lifted hands and a smile. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What commends the beauty of our Savior more? Don't be timid in your worship. When you come here with a friend or a brother or sister that you know, that you appreciate, why don't you say, brother or sister, I love you. How are you doing, really? Friends, what would keep you from doing all these things? Maybe you say, well, you know, I just don't want to be a distraction. I don't want to stand out. That's a good impulse. Don't do this to draw attention to yourself. I'm not saying to throw out discernment, uh, to throw discernment out the window. Maybe you say, you know, I just don't want to force it. I don't want to be insincere. That's fine. But don't you want to grow? 
Or do you want to be stagnant? You might say, well, all these things you're talking about, Steve, is just not my personality. That's fine. We don't want to force everyone into the same mold. But underneath all those reasons, underneath all those excuses might be something else still. That we're timid in our worship of God because we care too much about what other people think. For Mary, no gift was too much. No act was too low. No opinion from anyone else could keep her from honoring the Lord. Pray that you can worship God with that kind of freedom. Judas didn't understand this. Again, in Matthew and Mark's account, they both say that it was the disciples who spoke together about this. But in John's account, it's like Judas is the one who speaks up on behalf of the entire group. And notice how John introduces Judas. He says, one of Jesus' disciples, parentheses, you know, the guy who was about to betray him. John has to flag that for his readers pretty much every time that Judas comes up. And there are lessons for us in that. One lesson for us is to remind, from Judas, is to remind you how strong unbelief is. This man was with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry every single day of it for three years. This man saw Jesus feed some 20,000 people from a plate of food. This man saw Jesus heal the blind. This man just saw Jesus raise someone from the dead. And he remains unchanged. What Jesus says must be true then. That if you and I are going to believe in him, then the Holy Spirit must change our hearts. We must be born again. Because apart from God's grace, you and I would be just as blind as Judas. The character of Judas gives us lessons, even how John introduces him, the one who was going to betray him. You know, the other lesson isn't for you to be paranoid that I might be Judas. No, it's a lesson, yeah, I think for us as a church. As a church, we should exercise care and discernment in how quickly we affirm whether or not someone's Jesus' disciple. How quickly we affirm, yes, that person is a Christian. Let's bring them into the church. You know, you'll often hear pastors or churches share some stats after maybe an evangelistic outreach or event. Maybe they'll say something well-intended, but maybe not uh, thoughtful. We'll say something like, you know, today we had 10 salvations. And more precisely, today you might have had 10 professions of faith in Jesus. But the character of Judas, or even the lesson from Jesus' parable of the soils, would remind us that it's, it would be, we would be wise to take some time, to take some discernment, before we would affirm, yes, this person is a disciple of Jesus. This is why, by the way, we don't practice something that's referred to as instantaneous baptism. Meaning that at the end of each service, we just say, hey, the baptism waters are open if you're interested and you want to come and be baptized. No, we don't discourage professions of faith, but what we are saying, we want to handle them with care and discernment before we affirm a profession of faith. This is why we take our time in a church membership process. Well, here we are, back to the action. John has introduced Judas, and Judas protests Mary's actions. And Judas's question, doesn't it appear reasonable on the surface? It's like, Mary, you could have sold this and given this to the poor. A little bit of background, if a denarii was, was something like a day's wage, so if 300 of them would have been roughly equivalent to a year's salary. Now, old Judas could have just been exaggerating with how much this ointment costs, but his point remains. Mary, couldn't there be a more useful way to spend this money? Couldn't there be a more practical, a more effective way of using this gift? 
And behind Judas's question, you might hear the critiques of modern people, of Christians today, who say something to the effect of, you Christians are so heavenly minded that you do no earthly good. Now, before we get Jesus's response, John interjects with what's like behind the scenes footage. He tells us in verse six that, you know, Judas doesn't say this, guys, because he actually cares about giving to the poor. Judas says this because he cares about getting for himself. And I think that's usually how it works for people who level the type of criticism that Judas does. Well, make it concrete again. I, I take one example. Take the issue of abortion. There is no shortage of canned criticisms of Christians when it comes to abortion. Criticisms that go something like this. Well, you care for the baby in the womb, but you don't care for the baby once he's out of the womb. Or you're pro-life when it comes to the baby, but you're not pro-life when it comes to the mother. And we want to be open to criticism. We want to be teachable. We want to grow, absolutely. And I understand I'm painting with broad strokes here, but the thing is, the people who throw out criticisms like that usually don't care enough to be at the front lines of things like adoption or fostering or after-school programs or crisis pregnancy centers. You know who do, who do care enough, who does care enough to do those things? Christians. You know who are at the front lines of those things, overwhelmingly so? Christians. That's not to pat ourselves on the back. It's to remind us that our heavenly-minded faith is precisely what makes us earthly good. Christian, the gospel should be your best resource to instill true and practical care for the poor. Because we understand that God loved us when we were poor and had nothing to offer him. Even while we were still enemies to him. This is how the Apostle Paul motivates Christians in uh, the city of Corinth. So that they would donate to famine relief funds. Second Corinthians 8, he reminds them of their savior. He who was rich, but who for their sake became poor. My friend, how might you grow? How might you grow as an individual Christian in your gospel motivated care for the poor? How might you link arms with other church members here and do this together? Maybe that's something to talk about this week, even today after lunch. Maybe something to talk about with me. I would love to see the church at West Creek grow in these areas. Well, speaking of that savior who left his throne, Jesus speaks up for Mary and he responds to Judas's criticism in verse seven. First with three little words, leave her alone. You wonder if Jesus said that with some force. Leave her alone, Judas. You wonder if the room got quiet when Jesus said that. And maybe you don't see it, but I find these words deeply comforting. Because believer in Jesus, your savior is your great high priest who lives forever to make intercession for you, even when you don't realize it. I think of what happens to the apostle Paul at the end of his life. He's writing to his protege, Timothy. It says, Timothy, when I stood on trial for my faith, and my life was in the balance. All of my friends deserted me. No one stood by my side. But Timothy, I'll tell you something. You know who did stand by my side and strengthen me? The Lord himself. The Lord stands up for Mary. The Lord stood up and stood with Paul. My brother and sister, my fellow Christian, the Lord will stand up for and stand with you even when no one else does. Leave her alone, Jesus says. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, the Greek here is a little tricky. It could be translated, she had intended to keep it for the day of my burial. I think the heart of what Jesus says, though, is similar to what we saw last week at the end of chapter 11 with Caiaphas, the chief priest. Remember what happened to him. Remember what Caiaphas said. All of the big wigs are plotting together. And Caiaphas says, listen, guys, you don't understand. It would be better for one man to die for the whole nation rather than the whole nation to die themselves. And John says, Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. I think the same thing goes on here. Mary acts better than she knew. Her anointing of Jesus was intended to be a sincere act of humble devotion. What Jesus says that it actually doubles as preparation for his burial. And it's like he tells Judas, isn't the one who's going to be a substitute for sinners worthy of a gift like this? And it's not all he says in verse eight. He says, the poor you have with you always, but you don't always have with me. And it's not that Jesus is saying that Mary shouldn't give to the poor. He's saying that her opportunity and her ability to give to the poor, well, those things won't go away. But Mary's opportunity and Mary's ability to give to Jesus while he is physically present on earth, well, that is going away quickly. The bottom line for Judas is Jesus is saying, Judas, if you knew who I was, you would know that this gift is no waste. And think about if Jesus isn't God in the flesh, how amazingly arrogant of a statement that would be. So there's a contrast between Mary and Judas. And we said that contrast creates clarity. So what does this contrast make clear? What does the difference between Mary and Judas boil down to? Well, I think it's similar to what we just talked about. The difference boils down to this, that Mary has a deep realization and a deep embrace of who Jesus really is. She deeply embraces who Jesus really is. And she sees who she is in light of him. Similar passage also brings out this contrast, this difference. It's actually a similar scene. It comes in Luke chapter seven. This time Jesus is eating in the house of a Pharisee who happens also to be named Simon. And another woman, one with a scandalous reputation in the community, comes to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. And the Pharisee protests, not all that different from Judas. And Judas and Jesus interjects, not all that different from here. And Jesus says, you know what, listen, you know what the difference between, is between you and her? He says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And those who have been forgiven little, love little. Here's the rub. That if you only need Jesus in order to have better morals, if you only need Jesus to put you around nice people, if you only need Jesus to give you occasional help and wisdom, if you only need Jesus for those things, well, then doesn't a casual and superficial relationship with him make sense? Why would you be interested in a radical display of affection and devotion for someone who's just nice? If Jesus isn't precious and glorious, then doesn't it make sense to view other things as more precious and glorious? Again, I'm, I'm trying to be concrete this morning. I'm sure we can think of other examples. I, I, think about this. Why are a lot of Christians, especially in Northeast Ohio, more excited, more emotive, 
am more engaged when they watch a pathetic football team than when they gather at church. Why? Why is that? Maybe it's because they haven't deeply realized and embraced who Jesus actually is. You see, Judas hung around Jesus for three years, and this is what I pray does not happen to you. That Judas has gotten so used to just the appearance of following Jesus, but he never had his heart captured by Jesus. It's possible to get used to coming to church. It's possible to get used to going to Bible studies. It's possible to get used to putting a little donation in the box. It's possible to get used to coming to all the activities and not actually change. Not actually worship. Just do it out of routine. Just do it to keep up appearances. But if you're someone like Mary, who saw what Jesus did for her brother, and she kneels at his feet, deeply realizing a truth, I desperately need Jesus. Without him, I would be just like my brother. Without Jesus, I would be dead. Do you know that? Does that, has that hit you? Do, you? do you realize that day in, day out? Without Jesus, I would be dead. That without Jesus, I would be in hell. What would it look like for you to live in that realization every day, even moment by moment? That because of Jesus, I'm not going to hell anymore. That because of Jesus, I will be in the presence of the king of the universe where there is fullness of joy. You see, Mary realized that the Jesus sitting at that banquet table is the son of God who came to rescue sinners like her. That the Jesus sitting at that banquet table is everything to her. I love what the Puritan Thomas Brooks writes. He says that if we're sick, Jesus is the physician. If we're thirsty, Jesus is the fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in need of help, Jesus is mighty to save. If, if we fear death, Jesus is life. If we are in darkness, Jesus is light. If we are weak, Jesus is strength. If we are in poverty, Jesus is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. Jesus is everything. Can you say that, those things about anything else? Friend, has that landed on you? That Jesus is everything. Boy, it must have landed on Mary. Because if Jesus is everything to you, then you know what? You'll know that he deserves everything from you. No gift too great. No act of service too low. No opinion can dissuade. What we'll sing just in a moment. That love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the heart of a disciple. That's what becomes clear. Now, I hope this clarity brings a needed clarification for you because you or a friend might misunderstand that Christianity is just a series of propositional truths that you're supposed to agree with. No, no, it's so much deeper than that. It's the difference between Mary and Judas. It's a deep realization and embrace of who Jesus really is. It's a relationship with him, submitting to him as king, trusting him as savior. 
Have you done that? Has that landed on you? If it's starting to, would you talk to me, someone else here? Well, friends, I, I think I kept my promise. This was still point one. <laughs> point two will be shorter. There is another contrast in our passage. It comes in verses nine through 11. The contrast is between Lazarus and the chief priests. Now, Jesus' place of rest and refuge did not last that long. Now, remember, this is close to the Passover feast, one of the few feasts where all male Israelites were required to go to Jerusalem. And it could be that Jerusalem and the surrounding area, places like Bethany, were beginning to have an influx of people. And as more and more people were arriving, word gets out that Jesus is here. And not only that, word gets out that there's a guy with Jesus who Jesus rose from the dead, a guy named Lazarus. People go to see him. Let's just make a few observations about Lazarus. We noticed this earlier, but it bears repeating. John presents Lazarus as physically rising from the dead. Lazarus sits. Lazarus eats. Lazarus can be touched. And you know, John's going to present Jesus in the same way, physically rising from the dead. Listen to what Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote in the 19th century some 200 years ago. He says this, in an age of abounding unbelief and skepticism. Wow, he says that 200 years ago. In an age of abounding unbelief and skepticism, we shall find that the resurrection of Christ will bear any weight that we can lay upon it. Just as he placed beyond reasonable doubt that the rising of a beloved disciple within two miles of Jerusalem, so in a very few weeks, he placed beyond doubt that he won victory over the grave. If we believe that Lazarus rose again, we don't need to doubt that Jesus rose again also. Another observation about Lazarus. Look at what makes him attractive. Verse 9. People come to see Lazarus because Jesus raised him from the dead. You know why people didn't go to see Lazarus? People didn't go to see Lazarus because of what Lazarus did for himself. That's not why. People didn't go to see Lazarus because Lazarus was so cool. People didn't go to see Lazarus because Lazarus was relevant. He was hip. People went to see Lazarus because there was an undeniable change in this man that could only be explained by the Son of God. May that be what makes you attractive as a Christian. May that be what makes us attractive as a church. That there is an undeniable change in our character, in the course of our life, that can be explained only by an encounter with the Son of God himself. Observe something else of Lazarus. What's said about him? It says, on account of him, many people believed in Jesus. On account of him, many people believed in Jesus. Man, if, if there are nominees for a great epitaph on your tombstone, this might crack the top 10. Wouldn't this be a life well spent, friend? On account of him, on account of her, many people believed in Jesus. You know, Lazarus isn't the one who saved people, but his was the witness that God used to save on account of him, many people believe. Now, maybe you're thinking about that, applying that to yourself. You say, Steve, that sounds kind of daunting. I'm not sure. Well, my friend, if that's you, why don't you just start here? Why don't you pray, Lord, on account of my witness, would you even just save one person? Why don't you start here? On account of my witness, would you even just save one person? 
even one causes the angels in heaven to rejoice. Finally, observe about Lazarus that Lazarus risks having the same fate as his Lord. In Lazarus, we have a test case that proves Jesus' own words that a disciple is not above his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you as well. And the authors of the plot against Lazarus are the same authors of the plot against Jesus, that is the chief priests. So here we have Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and many of the Jews consider the evidence in front of them that Jesus resurrected a man who was dead for four days. They consider that evidence and then they conclude, well, Jesus is the son of God. We're going to believe in him. We're going to follow him. The chief priests consider that same evidence. They don't even try to dismiss it. They know they can't dismiss it. Instead, they try to destroy the evidence. And what does this contrast make clear? What's the heart of the difference between the chief priests and Lazarus and the others who believed? Well, I think the difference comes at the end of verse 11. They wanted to put Lazarus to death because many Jews were going away. Double click on that. Going away from whom? Going away from where? Well, presumably they were going away from them. So in front of the chief priest is the Messiah they've been waiting for, the Messiah they've been praying for, who they can't even deny rose someone from the dead. And it's not just that they don't believe in Jesus, they won't believe in Jesus. Because believing in Jesus will mean losing their lives. Believing in Jesus will mean losing their power. They would rather hold on to their power and their pleasure and their position than take hold of Jesus. And here's the heart of a true disciple of Jesus. Now, the only way you take hold of him is if you let go of everything else. If you hold it with an open hand, you lay it at the foot of the cross, and you say, as we often sing, Lord, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. By no means is that easy. Jesus himself urges you to count the cost. Your allegiance to him, your devotion to him might lose you friendships. It might lose you influence. It might lose you success but it will be worth it because this contrast makes clear a true disciple of Jesus, someone whom Jesus has redeemed from the inside out. A true disciple of Jesus doesn't focus so much on what he's lost as much as he focuses on who he has gained. We'll close with the apostle Paul's words. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord the greatest treasure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. You are our inheritance now and always. High King of heaven, be our treasure. Be more valuable to us than anything else. We desperately need you. And we rejoice in you that you are everything to us. All of our righteousness, all of our justification, all of our eternal life, all of our perseverance, all of our joy, all of our peace, all of our strength is wrapped up in you. Help us to rest and rejoice. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.